Okay, so last time we had uh, our time together, we started talking about miracles. If you remember, we got into the miracle of the resurrection. As I said earlier, so many people, when you hear the word miracle or anything divine, they see it as mythical, silliness, fanciful talk. We talked about um, David Hume, who was a, uh, is a prominent atheist that just cast aside any thought of morality, any thought of the divine as just something that our emotions sort of conjured up. But if you remember, we talked about that actually the idea of a miracle and the great miracle of the, of the resurrection or resurrection in general is actually necessary. And you'll see your notes, but it goes, the argument goes something like this. If you believe that all of us, there's a universal morality, that all of us have some sense of right and wrong, that, that murder, for example, is wrong in, in every culture of all times, uh, stealing, those types of things, adultery. If you believe in any sense of universal morality, then you have to believe that there was a lawgiver. So morality is necess necessitates a lawgiver that actually gave that law to everyone. You know, we can't physically in our limitations gather together as a people all over the globe and make some code of ethic. That some lawgiver had to have written that code within all of us so that a tribal people in the bush of Australia and people in Paris, France have a same sense of understanding that murder is wrong. So then it begs the question, well, where is that lawgiver? Who is that lawgiver? And if the lawgiver has given us a sense of right and wrong, there must be a sense of justice that's coming. And we recognize that justice is incomplete in this world. Brad said recently in a sermon that all lack of, what we see as a lack of justice is actually just delayed justice. That in the end, there's a settling of accounts. So if you believe in a universal morality, a sense of right and wrong, you have to believe there's a lawgiver. If you believe a lawgiver, you believe in justice. You believe that justice is going to come eventually, and we know intuitively that that justice isn't full and final here. Therefore, it mandates there's another life to come where justice and accounts are finally settled. Does that make sense? So it's, a, it's an apologetic argument, a logical argument, that actually not only do miracles are necessary, but as Immanuel Kant taught us, that actually the resurrection is necessary if you believe in morality. Make sense? It's a, so we talked about that. You see your notes, you have morality, lawgiver, justice resurrection. All right, hope that makes sense. Um, so we talked about that. After that, we looked at arguments that uh, people frequently bring against the resurrection of Jesus himself. And then we looked at uh, a rebuttal and presented our own evidence that they should consider. Okay. Thoughts, questions make sense. We're going to just rehearse those arguments really quick here in a second. Great. Notes are up. Perfect. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, you're a good God. You're merciful and kind to us. Father, by those mercies and kindness, you've, you've delivered us your word. You've given us, um, you've opened our minds to the truths of scripture, to the truth of the world around us. You've given us wisdom and we just, we're grateful for that. We ask for even further wisdom as we understand these matters. As we talk more today about the resurrection of Christ, I pray, Father, that it would encourage and strengthen us and embolden us, Father, to take your gospel message to those who don't, don't know it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, the resurrection of Christ is a big deal. Uh, we talked about that in more detail last week, but, but here are a couple of quotes I just want to remind you of. Calvin, as he's you know, spent really his entire adult life pouring in the scriptures, writing commentaries, um, you see a quote in your notes. He says, the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith. Without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope for eternal life. There is no hope, according to Calvin. He says it's the most important article of our faith. Certainly Paul echoes that um, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll look at more today. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. So you can't cast away the resurrection of Christ. We can't see it as just one of those things that are on the B list that we debate about as Christians. The Apostle Paul would say, Scripture would say, certainly God being its source, that without the resurrection of Jesus, we're all dead in sin. We're all dead in sin. There's no hope beyond the grave. We are all dead in sin, but certainly we know the resurrection is real. Um, 
So no matter how you want to explain it or try to debate it, we talked about last week that resurrection actually, something actually happened that day. And I just want to rehearse some of the, the arguments really quick. Um, we're going to do it this way. Imagine with me that you're in a courtroom, okay? You're the jury. We're all sitting out in the courtroom and there's a trial going on. And the trial has a prosecuting attorney and it has a defense attorney. And the trial is, did, was Jesus resurrected? Did he come back from the grave or not? And so we'll give the prosecutor the first set of witnesses, okay? So the prosecutor, first he does, he calls a medical expert to the, to the stand. And he said, what do you think happened? What do you think happened? The, the tomb is empty. Jesus is gone. What do you think happened? He said, well, it's medically possible that he actually didn't die. Oh, that's interesting. Why don't you explain yourself? Well, he could have been swooning. He could have fainted. He could have been in a coma for a while. And then in the tomb, he sort of woke up and said, wow, it's dark and cold in here. I've got a lot of pain in my side and my hands. And he, he physically shoved the stone away, eluded the guards, and, and walked away. So that's defense number one, a medical expert. Is that possible? It's possible that someone could look like they're dead and they're really not dead. And of course, we, you know, on the defense side as a jury, you have to decide how possible really is that. Could someone have a spear in their side, uh, be ha- uh, nail holes in their hands, hang on a cross, Roman experts pronouncing them dead, dragging them to a tomb, wrapping them up in full linen, throw them into a dark cave, and three days later shove a stone out of the way, elude captivity, and then show up to a group of disciples in full, uh, full health. The next witness would be a Roman guard. Roman guard, what do you think happened? You were there. And he said, yeah, the tomb is empty, but I think the disciples stole the body. The disciples stole the body would be his argument. So you have to ask yourself, is that jury, is it possible? Could the disciples have really stolen the body, body, the body knowing that the Jews had warned the Romans that they would try it, knowing that Pilate said himself he would put a good guard on duty that would watch day and night, knowing that the Jews knew the day in which he said he would be resurrected, and somehow the disciples stole the body. Next witness, Pilate. Pilate, your guards let this man get away. What happened? They said that he stole the body. Well, maybe the Jews stole the body. Maybe they bribed my soldiers. A full investigation will be in order. A priest. I think Jesus was probably a spirit. All these people have testified that he came back. Well, he's a ghost. He's a ghost. Of course, the testimonies of themselves say that Jesus not only came and appeared, but he he allowed them to touch his hands. A couple of occasions he actually ate with them, physically ate with them. Certainly not not a ghost. And Jesus Jesus himself bore witness. Hey, don't be afraid. I'm not a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. Maybe a psychologist is called. He says this is some kind of a mass hallucination that all 500 witnesses, Peter, the disciples, they just all had this hallucination at the same time. Certainly we know that there is no examples in history of ever a mass hallucination. They're mass hysterias. Um, and they weren't expecting to see Jesus in the first place. They were shocked every time. Even when they saw him, they, were, they panicked. They didn't know. He had to calm their fears. Maybe that same psychologist would quote others that would say, well, it's wishful thinking. You know, it's a wishful thinking. But again, we know that wasn't the case. So there the prosecution rests. So now you're the jury. We have to decide, is that good enough evidence? Is it good enough evidence? Maybe one other, uh, just a point, kind of aside. Uh, It's not uncommon in Islam to to hear that Judas died on the cross. That it actually wasn't Jesus. That they actually, that it was Judas. And yet that's not what scripture bears witness. That's what testimonies would bear witness. You'd certainly know that Jesus' followers would know that was Judas on the cross. They wouldn't be weeping. They wouldn't be distraught. You know, they wouldn't be giving up their own uh, tomb for a, a, a traitor. So we know Judas himself actually committed suicide before the crucifixion. So the defense comes and he calls his first witnesses. He calls all the soldiers. Tell me about the tomb. And they said the tomb was empty. He calls the Jewish leaders. You heard the report. You ran up there. Was the tomb empty? Yes, the tomb was empty. He called local citizens who lived by. And as the the, uh, rumors began to spread, who rushed up to the tomb to see the empty tomb, what did you see? We saw nothing. Empty tomb, empty tomb. 
empty tomb. Hours of testimony of those that witness firsthand the empty tomb passes. Then he calls Peter. He calls James. He calls over 500 others who said they saw him personally, heard him speak. Peter, did you see him? James, did you see him? 500 more, did you see him? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Jesus made prophecies about himself. He calls people at the temple the day Jesus said, when you tear it down, I'll build it back. Did he say it? Yes, he did. Did he prophesy he would return? Yes, he, he called even the Sanhedrin. He called other Jewish leaders. Let's go, to the, let's go to the prophet Isaiah. What does this say? What does this say? He called other Jewish scholars then and talked about other prophecies. Teachers of the law, Paul himself. So now we're multiple days into the defense's argument. And then he calls the disciples themselves. And he says, what changed you? Where were you the Sunday night before Jesus appeared? He said, we were in a room, according to John 20, 19. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked were the, because the disciples were afraid of the Jews. Well, we were, in a, we were in a locked room. We were scared to death. Then he begins to call 3,000 people who were saved at Pentecost. What were the apostles doing on the day of Pentecost? And they said, Peter was standing with the 11, with the 11, according to Acts 2. And this is what he said. He lifted up his voice loudly and he yelled out in the street, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. And he goes on and he told us that we killed and crucified Christ. How do you explain the change? He calls up Peter again, James, Paul, the 500, and says, are you willing to stand in contempt of court? Are you willing to die for this testimony? All of them, even in isolation, absolutely willing to die. We said last time, liars make bad martyrs. Calls the Jewish leaders, points out that they continue to persecute the church and Jesus like he's alive. They call the early church and the followers and, and Jewish Christians explaining why would you change the Sabbath from a Saturday to a Sunday if this is a lie? Why would you celebrate communion if your Savior is dead? Why would you do that? And then hundreds of others who now follow the way come one after the other explaining their new faith in this Christ and the, their own testimony And then in the end, an unexpected person comes to the stand, and it's Gamaliel. He was a leader in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of the day. And he says this. He says in Acts 5, Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census, And led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore in the present case I advise you. Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is human origin it will fail. But if it's from God you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting God himself. Sounds wise, doesn't it? An unexpected testimony. Well, that's the evidence. But let me submit to you that he's right. The church of Christ is the most clear evidence for the resurrection. You and I, 2,000 years later, we are the most clear evidence that Jesus Christ is no longer dead and in the grave. And I think we can get caught up in some of these apologetic arguments, which are, I think, important. But then forget the reality is that you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ that necessitated his death, burial, and resurrection. And that we've been empowered, which we're going to see a little bit more later. And we're equipped to go and share the truth of this. That you and I and our changed life and our faith in Christ 2,000 years later is the clearest and greatest apologetic to understanding that the resurrection is real. And Gamaliel was right. If it's from God, man will not stop it. And the church of God will prevail and continue. And the scripture says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
It tells us that how we live matters. How we treat one another matters. How we treat others matter. How we deal with anxiety matters. How we raise our kids matters. How we do our business affairs matters. Matters. The message we preach matters. All right. Pause there. That's summary. Any thoughts, questions, comments before we move on? No? Track it with me? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's look at what Paul says. You know, Paul also has an argument um, and an apologetic. And if you, uh, while I'm getting, flipping my notes here, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. Well, like I said, we've been a, a using Scripture as a, a weight of evidence for our apologetic arguments. Well, now we get to change that, and we're going to dive into Scripture as believers, okay, as Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. If you remember kind of a silly story last week about Sherlock Holmes and Watson going camping, or two weeks ago, and, you know, they look up in the stars in the middle of the night, or look up in the middle of the night, and it's all starry skies, and Sherlock Holmes Ask Watson, what does he think is going on? Or what do you think about this? And Watson gives this great argument about, you know, or all these big um, scientific terms, theological terms, metaphysical terms um, for what he sees. And Sherlock just reminds him, look, someone stole our tent. Like, let's just not miss the obvious here, getting down into the weeds too much. And really, when you think about the obvious, Paul's life, as Chris told me after that talk, he said, Paul's testimony, Paul's life is Watson's tent. It is the obvious thing that, that we have to deal with. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he himself puts, him, puts his tent on display. Look at my life. Let's not get caught up in all the theological. How do you explain me? How do you explain this? Um, and let's just see how he does it. He just, as Paul does, he just masterfully lays out this, this uh, case for the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to do, let's do the first four verses. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we'll pause there. Let's just unpack it, Okay. First thing he does, he lays out his priority from the beginning. Now, he's getting to an argument for the resurrection of Christ. But how does he start? He starts with his priority. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Of the gospel. See, they had heard it before. He's reminding them again, before I lay out this argument, I want you to understand the gospel. He said, it's a gospel you received and in which you stand. You see, they had embraced the gospel. These were Christian people. And before he got into to these defenses, he wanted them to remember, look, in the basis of who you are, you've been redeemed by Christ. Okay, this is the important thing. I want to fan that flame within you. This is my ultimate priority, that you understand and remind, be reminded that Christ himself redeemed you. Okay, so this isn't really going to be just about evidence. This isn't just a court case. I want you to know that this is personal and don't forget. He goes on, he says, um, this is the gospel you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless he warns them, you believe in vain. Okay, so he's saying, look, what I'm about to lay down for you, if you know Christ, if you've embraced this gospel, it's going to be clear to you. It's going to be obvious to you, but not so for those of you that have believed in vain. And let me say like, and we've talked about this, but it's the same for us as we talk. There are arguments that you listen to. You may hear me talk and go, this is so obvious. Why would anybody not understand the resurrection of Christ? The evidence is so weighty. 
Well, because it's spiritually discerned as well. It's evidential and there's a spiritual discernment. According to 2 Corinthians 4, the world without Christ is being blinded. They're unable to see. The God of this world, Satan himself, has blinded them. And unless God says, let there be light within their life and, and illuminates them, opens their minds as we're going to see, there's a spiritual veil, a spiritual darkness there. And that spiritual darkness, it weighs heavy upon the evidence. It weighs heavy because in the end, as we've talked about in Romans 1, Chris reminded us that in the end, these are moral arguments. These are moral resistance as much as logical resistance. No matter how heavy the evidence is to point to the existence of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the truth of Scripture, in the end we resist because we don't want the moral restraint. We don't want to lose our own individual sovereignty and have to surrender, you see, no matter how logical it is. And as believers, we've already made that leap. We already recognize and now we're living in the joyful disposition of knowing Christ and having our eternity secure. So we read these evidence and we're like, hallelujah, because there's a spiritual element laid on it. But Paul says, listen, if, I, if you have believed in vain, in other words, you're, you're bearing verbal witness, but you're really not his, then these things aren't going to make as much sense. Okay, you, These are not going to be discerned by you. Does that make sense? Okay, I think it's important. It's important. Um, all right. Just underline that one more time. Apologetics can't save anyone. It can make them curious. It can cause them to doubt their view. Um, Paul was clear. He said, if you don't believe the gospel, you won't accept the conclusions of the evidence surrounding Christ's death and resurrection. Okay. So let me deliver this. He goes on to say, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. What I received. So Paul himself actually didn't make up the gospel. He didn't come up with an argument to save them. He received it. He says, I made this first important to you with it. I received, okay, that I shared with you this gospel. And what is it, he says, and how does it tie to the resurrection? He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, so here we see the resurrection, a critical, vital part of the gospel. He ties them together. You see what he did? He says, look, I'm going to remind you of the gospel, and these things are going to make sense to you. You're going to understand that Christ was resurrected according to the scripture, unless you're really not his. Then you're going to believe these things in vain. You're going to check the boxes on all the evidence, but there's really no transformation in your life. And that's more important than you understand the evidence. Does that make sense? That's more important. He says, when he ties the resurrection to the gospel, he's telling us either the gospel and the resurrection are both true or the gospel and the resurrection are both false. You see, the gospel and the resurrection are either both true or the gospel and resurrection are both false. He doesn't want them to be misled in that. Okay, then Paul himself trans transitions to his own defense. Okay, and if we'll notice when we, that he doesn't focus in on the empty tomb. And we talked about that two weeks ago. The, the significance was the reappearing. The tomb only caused doubt and confusion. You know, the women are there and they see it empty. What's happened? And they even talk to an angel. and They still don't understand what's happened. And they even see Jesus and they don't even know it's him. I think he's a gardener, right? And then the disciples get the news and they don't understand. And so Peter and John, they bolt off to the empty tomb. They see it. They don't understand what's going on. They leave. They're confused. They go in a room. They lock the door scared to death. Maybe the, maybe the Romans or the Jews stole the body and they're going to frame us and they're just going to wipe us out in mass. So the empty tomb doesn't bolster our faith. The reappearance of Christ is the real testimony, right? Now, certainly that's evidence, but it isn't enough. So look what he says in 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to 15, 5 through 8. Um, and I was talking about the reappearance. And he appeared, being Christ, to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. So he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here's his reasonable defense. This is his 
you know, logical apologetic. He says this. First of all, he appeared to Peter. Now, if you're a listener to that, you may say, well, that's not a credible witness. It's just Peter. Peter would have had a motivation to, to you know, make this thing up. He appeared to Peter. Um, what's interesting, God's grace, is that this is also the one that had denied him three times. Right, just recently, just three days ago. And he comes and he appears to Peter. Um, but, but again, that may not be strong enough for you. As a matter of fact, the prophet or the Islamic prophet Muhammad at age 39 said he saw the angel Gabriel and he gave him a teaching. And that was in 610 AD. And people believed him. Well, here you have Peter, a single witness, Muhammad, a single witness. Muhammad had no one else around. But it was enough evidence to start to start a new faith in some, in some people's minds. But then Paul doesn't leave it at that, the same evidence as sort of Muhammad. He says he also appeared to the 12 apostles. Now that's much better evidence, but these are still insiders, right? These are still people who could cooperate with one another. John tells us in John 21, actually this happened three different times. So three separate occasions he came to the apostles. So he had a group of 12, if you include Paul. What's interesting is Joseph Smith had this similar testimony. Joseph Smith at age 24 went into the woods and had vision. He says that he talked to God the Father and God the Son, and then later an angel visited him and showed him golden tablets. And so he was a single witness, and people began to believe it. Then he found three other men who were willing to cooperate with him, and they were called the three witnesses. And so now you have four and then later, some of his, Joseph Smith's family and one of the witnesses' families signed an affidavit giving them 12 witnesses. So similarly, um, Mormonism has 12 witnesses that says an angel gave this guy golden tablets. I saw them. But Paul doesn't start, stop there. He says that, that Christ also appeared to 500 at the same time. Now, now we're getting a group a sampling size. This is a hard group to argue with. That they, even in isolation, they all sweared by the appearing. And I love Paul's order here. You know, first of all, he says, he'll, he restored Peter. Then he empowered the disciples. He restored the apostles who were living in fear. And then he went out to witness to, to the crowds, as he will call them to do. Yet again, this biblical narrative of Christ modeling for us, you know, his, his journey, right? The word to follow. He goes on, and then he's, interestingly, he says, then he appeared, he doesn't say then, but he appeared to James. Or he says, then he appeared to James. But he appeared to James. And why is that significant, other than just God's mercy, God's grace in James' life? We see, even in John 5, 7, James was Jesus' brother, and John tells us that for not even his brothers believed in him. So Christ appeared to his own brother to restore him as well. God's grace. It says he appeared to all the apostles. Um, this would have included Thomas. You know, Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared to the apostles. He was gone. And so he didn't believe it. He said, I only believe it if I see it, if I touch him. And so God's mercy and total grace to Thomas's life. He came back. Thomas was there. And he said, hey, Thomas, come here. So more evidence. Paul just lining this out while helping us understand the character and mercy of Christ. The grace of God in all these appearances. And then he goes to himself. He says that last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. And I love Paul's humility there. I love his humility. It's like, I don't deserve it. I deserve it less. As a matter of fact, he goes on and says, I'm the least of the apostles. And yet he appeared to me. And his testimony is hard to refute. Here's a guy who murdered Christians who was gaining prominence in the Sanhedrin for being this zealous person stamping out yet another cult. You know, we read Gamaliel's testimony. There were others that came, and they were, they were stamped out. Their leaders were killed, done. So here's Paul. Like, I can also go down in history. Maybe I'll be like one of the Maccabees, or maybe I'll be you know, like one of the, the judges of old. You know what I mean? I could be the next Samson or, or, or uh, Gideon or whatever. And so he's passionately going after and yet, on the road to Damascus, Christ appears to him, and his life is changed forever. Paul had zero to gain 
to bear witness of this. He had nothing to gain, everything to lose. And now he was going to place himself as the enemy number one to those who were sending him out to stamp out the church. And if it wasn't bad enough, even the Christians rebuffed him. So that's Paul, his story. He says this, um, well, we'll go on in a second. One thing that's interesting about Paul, um, first of all, just an aside, there's really very little debate that Paul was a historical figure. In case someone's out there going, well, Paul could just be this made-up character. We know that he was, even from the strongest textual critics, seven of his letters have just been, are irrefutably his. This is the person. If he wrote them irrefutably, he existed. That's as simple as the argument can get. Certainly, there's evidences that all of his letters were written by Paul, but even, even the strongest critics can't. I mean, there's seven that everyone just says, hey, these are the seven, and then the others we can, we can talk about. Um, Chris shared also with me that it was Paul's conversion that really challenged a professor. It was a professor, right, um, in college, that even though he wouldn't claim to be a Christian, all this evidence, he couldn't deal with Paul. He couldn't deal with Paul. How could Paul have changed so dramatically? How could that even be possible? Well, back in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 11, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Clearly, we know Paul wasn't a fan of Jesus. He had no faith disposition to want, you know, to see Christ, to change and again, we have to ask, what do we do with this guy? What do we do with Watson's tent here before us? Um, and let me just submit to you, your testimony is irrefutable as well. Your testimony, your changed life, your belief in Christ, you realigning all your priorities in life to a, a risen Savior for an eternal heaven, for eternal kingdom, is irrefutable. It's irrefutable. You have the ability in, in your own relationship to just share what Christ, who he is and what he's done. That your alignment, your, your life isn't apologetic. It's, and we said at the church is, well, individually, that is our great apologetic, right? That we were dead in our tras, trespasses, happy to be dead, happy in our trespasses, not looking, you know, not looking for something. We're not out seeking because we're so smart. We're looking for the evidences and all this data to, to prove the existence of God and Christ himself sheerly on his own mercy saved us and now we have a, a future hope now we're living for a kingdom to come not a kingdom that's here and that affects again how we treat one another and how we live our lives we have an irrefutable testimony I love this Revelation 12 talks about you know the the apostles the martyrs and it says they conquered him Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they love their lives, love not their lives even unto death. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The gospel preached, the gospel lived out and experienced in our own life. He goes on, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He just accepts it. He just accepts it. Like, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the most unworthy to be saved, but only by God's grace, here I am before you. I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, he said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So he's, he stands and says, listen, I'm, I'm unworthy, but my changed life is a testimony. It's an apologetic before you. Look, here's all these appearings, but I'm going to go right back on point that it's about a redeemed person, a redeemed life, and a proclamation of the gospel before you. It's not really even the evidence. And he says, whether it's me or whether it's the other apostles or the 500, he said, so we preach, so you believe. And in the end, you know, it's the, pre the preaching of the gospel in our own testimony that saved him. Um, in summary there, I just want to say apologetics is just simply one of the roadmaps to the gospel message. I think that's important for us to understand. That the apologetics is an on-ramp. There are other on-ramps, but we're getting back to the gospel. Look, you may not be able to debate on a stage like in an auditorium 
an atheist, and that's okay. Not, not everybody uh, is even called to do that. But you can bear witness of the power of Christ in your life, and you can put on display this new life that you have and a new hope in Christ, and that is a more powerful apologetic. It is a more powerful apologetic. So Paul says, look, I started with the gospel. I want you to understand. Let me remind you of the gospel. Let me show you the evidence, and then I'm going to go right back and say, here I am, and I bear witness, and I can do no other. Any thoughts, questions there? Clear, helpful? Well, so what do we do with all of this evidence? What do we do with all this information in nine weeks of class? Well, I thought it would be helpful to just read what Jesus actually said when he, he appeared. He didn't just appear and wave and gone. He actually spoke. He actually was discipling his followers. So I just broke it up into almost a preachy category here, the three Ps, okay? Um, and I'm looking at, uh, if you, if you want to go you know, on your own, Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 20 are three great chapters to just read that all really kind of highlight these things. But the first thing that Jesus speaks is peace, peace. He, he, he appears in all three of these cases. People are scared. And the first thing he says is, hey, peace, peace I give you. Peace I leave you. You see it in John 20, 19. I'll read an example. He said, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were in fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And two verses later, he says it again. Then eight days later, he appears, and the first thing he says is peace. He brings peace. What they don't realize, I don't think at the time, is he's actually bringing them more peace than they realize. That he's delivering peace eternally for them in, this, in the resurrection. Right? He's delivering them peace eternal. So they're temporarily scared, as we might be when someone challenges our faith, or we might be when someone wants to know why we're a Christian, or we're trying to share the gospel, or we're worried about how to break the ice or whatever. He knows their hearts are beaten out of their chest, and they're nervous, they're scared. So he temporarily says, look, peace. But what they didn't realize is he was delivering ultimate peace, ultimate peace to them. The other thing he, next thing he tells them always is to preach, to, pe to preach. So even our own lives, we recognize if we know Christ, he's given us an eternal peace. You know, if we're rejected by men because we're bearing witness, that's a small thing. It's a small price to pay. You know, I heard someone say one time that, could you imagine the Apostle Paul visiting us today? And the Apostle Paul comes back and, and we're talking with him and, and, uh, He's talking about the persecution of his day. And we say, oh, us too, Paul. Us too. The persecution is, it's terrible. Oh, Paul says, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine how much worse it might be because it was so brutal in our day and the church really suffered much. And, and I'm sorry you guys are suffering. Like, what, what are they doing? Are they dragging you in the streets? Are, are they throwing stones at you as we see bruises and whelps on Paul's arms? A, a, a marred face from all the whippings and beatings. No, they, they laugh at us, Paul. They laugh at us. They snicker. They, they turn us down for a promotion. They, they make life just emotionally. Uh, it's terrible, Paul. Christ says peace. What a small price. If we live for a kingdom to come, Christ gives us peace and we're called to proclaim. We're called to, to preach. And we're not only just called to preach anything, we preach the gospel, we preach Christ, the revealed word. He tells them that that's him. He, you know, there's a great account in Luke 24 where uh, disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, not the, one of the 12, but men who had been in Jerusalem and they're stirred up. They're talking about all of these things that have happened and all of the, you know, the, the chaos around this empty tomb and the reports of resurrection. And Jesus dialogues with them. They don't know it's him. And he says this. He says, oh, it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So it says that he went back in the Old Testament. He said, look, Moses and the prophets. And we know later that the Psalms of David, that Jesus just unpacked it and said, this is me. Now, that would be an amazing moment to be a part of. Just to hear Jesus unpacking scripture. This was me all along. This is me. This is me. Then later that chapter, it says he appeared to his disciples. He says this in verse 44. He says to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So wait, you mean the Psalms are writing about Jesus? The prophets wrote about Jesus? Moses? Absolutely. Jesus is telling them these were about me. Then it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opens their minds. This is a great thing just practically for us to pray when we're talking to people, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're in apologetic conversations. And it's a great thing to pray even for ourselves and we're in the word, that God himself would just help them open their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem's. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses. So he's like, look, I've shown you who I am. You know me. Let me show you scripturally where I'm the fulfillment of all these things. And your mandate now is to proclaim these things. Proclaim these things. Paul said, I received this gospel. Now I'm giving it to you. We've received the gospel and we're to proclaim these things. So even in apologetic conversations, it's an on-ramp, it's an opportunity to get to the greater weight of things, get to this message of Christ revealed through the gospel. But he doesn't just call us to that. He doesn't just give us peace and peace eternal. And he doesn't just give us this mandate to preach, even through apologetics, but he empowers us to do it. He empowers us to do it. The passage I just read in Luke 24 goes on. It says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Stay there until we give you power, which we know happened on Pentecost. Or before. Matthew 28, he says this, another parallel passage. We call it the Great Commission. I'll go back to verse 16. He says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's our power. There's our mandate. There's our savior. He says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, I'm commanding you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe what I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So Jesus says, look, I have, I'm the resurrected king. I am the Lord of creation. I'm the Lord of you. He says, all that authority has been given to me. So therefore, and more literally, instead of go as you are going, as you go, as you do your affairs, he says, go make disciples. Go make disciples. That's our, our mandate and again, going back, apologetics is a great tool to a great commission, but it isn't a replacement for preaching the gospel. Um, and uh, anyway, that's it. I'm going to wrap it up because I want to leave a few minutes, about 10 or 15 for questions. Any questions on anything you just heard this morning? Any thoughts? Well, our hope is that this week or this uh, series um, has been encouraging, has built some confidence in you to have these conversations. And that even this morning, there's sort of a spiritual encouragement to walk in confidence in the risen Christ, John. Yeah, yeah good. Good. Yeah, so John asked, 
how do you know when the moment is right for an apologetic conversation or just a straight up gospel? And you've got a mic right there, Chris, if you, if you want to grab it so you can answer any questions too. So you can, and Sam's back here as well. So I had him bring a mic for you guys in case you guys have any questions for them. Um, I guess my own experience, I'll, I'll answer, you know, um, from that. Um, my take is that most apologetic conversations Conversation two, conversation three, end up becoming almost a smokescreen, you know. Um, and so it's never wrong just to press in with asking them a question that just gets the gospel right out there. I think we can err staying in apologetics too long. We probably can't err getting to the gospel too fast, if, if that helps. So if there's sort of that doubt, to me it's a press in, hey, what's your spiritual, you know, uh, what's your opinion of these things? Or or, or what are, what's your hope, you know, for, for the next life? Do you believe in a resurrection? Well, what if you're wrong, you know? So it can feel apologetic, but you're really, in your mind, you're a couple steps ahead sort of getting, you know, to the gospel. Um, I think God gives most of us, maybe all of us, uh, some sort of a discernment of the openness of the hearer, if that makes sense. And the more you discern they're open, I think the faster you get to a gospel, a gospel uh, proclamation. Um, I get frustrated sometimes in the more apologetics, I'll just admit it, that I just kind of want to get the conversation over with if it's just an argument. Um, and yet when you have this sense of that they're listening, you can lean in, I think, and, and, uh, and you know, have a, a real good conversation. I don't know, Chris, if you want to add any evidence of like when, you know, when it seems appropriate to dive in, you know, to the gospel versus apologetics. Here, I can mess with it while you're talking here. It's off. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. Um, just from my own personal experience in dealing with students a lot, um, I think that question has to be kind of filtered through um, the types of questions that's being asked to you. Um, and so I do have a lot of students that come to me and ask these types of apologetic questions. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy of using as an on-ramp. And um, so sometimes students will come and they'll ask, um, you know, really specific questions, really specific apologetic questions. Um, or they'll come and ask really specific um, systematic theology questions. And whatever kind of avenue... Um, that question brings, that's the sort of the on-ramp. And I have found that um, through the course of the years I've been teaching, that those, those are two categories. Those are two definite categories that students have. Um, apologetic questions, and there's the on-ramp, or systematic theology question, and there's the on-ramp. And both of them uh, ultimately, is, as um, Kevin rightly said, both of them lead should lead to the gospel. Um, and we see that over and over in Paul's examples as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not just that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, but that passage in um, Acts 17 as well, where Paul gives an astute philosophical argument where he's quoting to the Athenians, their Greek poets. But if you follow that passage out, he's working his way to the resurrection. Um, and for Paul, that's an all-or-nothing argument mm-hmm. for him. And I think that should be the case, too. This is us working to the, to the, to the resurrection, the power of the gospel. In that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, you can stay up here if you want. Does that help? Anything from Zoom? Not yet. Not yet. Anything, anything else? Yeah. 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 Good. So, guys, asking about the character, you know, uh, your own personal character, demeanor, attitude, motivations, you know, in um, you know, in debating or, or these things, and certainly, um, you know, we know the scripture. Romans tells us the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. 
right? I mean, I think that ought to be a model, you know, to us. We're certainly called to be kind to one another, certainly in the church and without the church and gospel witness. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I'd be interested in your thoughts, but I guess what came to mind is, is think of the life of Christ and how he responded to different types of people when they came. So there was a harshness at times in Christ when people tried to trap him or people had, you know, sort of a, um, you know, hey, let's, what are you going to do about this healing on the Sabbath or, or, you know, whatever. And sometimes he just, you know, just laid out the evidence pretty brashly and said, not in a loving way, obviously we would never accuse Christ of being mean-spirited or anything, but he just says, here's the evidence or here's the truth. You're going to have to deal with it. And then, and yet he would also um, resurrect the little girl and say, you know, you know, little girl, come and eat, you know, and, and it was tender. Or, you know, when a sincere question, you know, I want to follow you, so sell everything and, and give to the poor and follow me. So there was a, a sincere answer to a sort of a sincere question. Now, we can't spiritually discern that, you know, as well as Christ has, but I think sometimes an answer has to be a little bit clear, thought through, and, and bold. And, and I think it's, it's sort of matching up to the discerned intentions and the tone of the conversation. But certainly even in that is loving and kindness. It's hard to just smash somebody in an argument and then get to the gospel. And it's smart and you think you can beat them on the argument. I think oftentimes, more often than not, we should sort of hold that back and sort of gain the hearer and, and to get to a gospel message. So, Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's a, there's a difference between defending something and being defensive about mm-hmm. something. And oftentimes, uh, and I've, my own sinful nature have fallen into that second part where you want to get defensive and you, um, your ego comes out and, uh, as opposed to defending. And, and Peter actually gives us that um, roadmap mm-hmm. where he says to give an apologia, give a defense, but to do it with gentleness and mm-hmm. kindness. Um, and that is, back to that issue again, that's the on-ramp, I think, to, um, to getting back to the gospel as well. Uh, I, I would ins- I, I would want you to think about something, too, as we've gone over this course for this um, nine weeks or so, nine lessons, um, that I mentioned that I have a lot of interaction with students, and there are people in this room, there are people hopefully watching this as well, and one of my observations in 20 years of teaching um, at a Christian school and being at a Christian school, their students are no different to the influences of things around them than they are at any other place. But I have run into this over and over and over again that um, you, by, you want to engage your, your kids or your grandkids not only how to defend their faith, if they have this faith, but to, how to contend for this faith as well. There's a contention here. Because we started off by talking about this worldview of naturalism and, the, and all the kind of characteristics of it as well. Uh, and it is con- that's not just something that's floating in space somewhere. That, that's grounded in real people who are really after the hearts and minds of a culture. And the way you do that is you capture the minds of kids. Mm-hmm. This is the onset. So I, I get emails all the time from parents who are gravely concerned for their 11th grade son of whom has gone on to the internet and this is the source of information. This is the God of the age, right? Um, Who has received, uh, looking for answers for something and has gone out and engaged and looked and has um, been radically um, altered the way way they're thinking as well. And so mom and dad are really concerned and rightly so. Um, so teaching your kids, once again, not just to how to defend, not be defensive, but defend, but also to contend for uh, the faith. And that may mean for you giving a defense um, to your grandkids as well and how, showing them how to contend for those things. So, yeah. That's good. Hopeful. Fred, go ahead.
good. Good. I'll try to repeat that. So, so Fred's asking, you know, we live in a world, especially academically, where evolution, not so much as, as it used to be, but it's sort of universally accepted. This is just sort of the way it happens. And so we're trying to figure out now scientifically how to make up all the gaps. So one of them is that the brain, there was a leap in evolution to where some species' brains allowed for emotion and intellect and learning and things to a different level. Those people sort of swam out of the water and then evolved into other species. And then, you know, I'll add that, you know, primates or the humans ended up getting opposing thumbs and that's how we got smarter than the apes because we can pick things up. And so all these little evolutionary changes is really the naturalist sort of argument of how we get where, where we are. And so the question is, like, what, what's a good sort of pushback to say, hey, here, here's my take on that. And Chris, I don't know, I know you teach this also, uh, you know, in class, so how would you answer that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess one of the ways, and I've been asked that question of sorts in a different fashion, but to the same end of that question. Um, and always one of my ways I want to come back to that question is um, to look at kind of the kind of the context of the question. And what I mean by that is. Um, People, when they articulate an argument like that, are saying that through the course of time, our brains are, which we don't, in that worldview, we don't have a mind, it's only a brain, that our brains come to some sort of conclusion about ourselves um, through evolutionary time. And the argument is, or the pushback is, that at one point in our evolutionary brain, um, we were not able to come to these conclusions, and now, through our evolutionary brain, we are able to come to these conclusions. So the, the premise is this, that at one point in our evolutionary brain process, we were not able to understand, and we couldn't trust our brains. And now, we're able to, through the evolutionary process, to trust our brains to tell us truths about ourselves and about the world. And my one kind of pushback to that is, um, if we couldn't trust our evolutionary brains in the past, why are we so confident that we can trust our evolutionary brains now to tell us truths? In my own contention with people that I've run into, with students that I've run into who are claimed to be atheists and skeptics, is that I tell them, well, actually, I don't think you're skeptical enough. <laughs> Uh, if you're truly a skeptic, you need to be a skeptic and not play the field on this, not to play both ends of the field on this. And so it's a great question, and it's one, something to, to, to engage in that. So once again, my kind of pushback to that is, if you can't trust your evolutionary brain in the past to tell you something that's true, why can we trust it now? Um, yeah, I always think of that, that quote, I'm not sure if Aristotle actually said it, but it's attributed to him. If you want to ask, uh, if you want to know what it's like to be wet, never ask a fish, because that's the only context it knows. It doesn't know anything outside that. And by saying that, that we can trust our brains now to tell us something from the past that we couldn't beforehand, then we're saying that we can see outside that box. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an issue. So, yeah, I've told students that if you want to be skeptical, fine. If you want to be atheist in your worldview, but are you being skeptical enough? Are you completely given over to things without being skeptical to these ideas? So I'm not sure if that's helpful, but that's one of the ways I've addressed that. Helpful? Yeah, I mean, at best, it's a theory, right? At best, it's all speculative. It's all just it could be, possibly, maybe. And so at minimum, you're on equal playing field to say, well, let me throw out some possibilities for you. You know what I mean? It, it's not that uh, there's any evidence other than they're trying to figure out what God has done in, in man and with a different worldview in mind. Yeah, and I'd still go, I'd still go back to that same answer. It's, it's tied into the morality question as well. Yeah. So if you can say that at one time... Um, which is the argument today that through a brainstem study, the, the neurological state of wellness, well-being, is how we determine morality. Well, then you ask the question, well, how, what's the basis for determining well-being? 
Um, so it's still to me the same argument. Um, how do you trust your brain to tell you now? Because if your evolutionary brain's telling you right now that it's wrong to murder and rape, then how do we know that 500 million years from now, if we live this long and our brains keep evolving, that eventually our evolutionary brains will tell us that it's okay to murder and rape? I mean, where does the, where's the stopgap mm -hmm. in that? So it's a great question. Yeah, I think just basic on evolutionary, I, I, I go to a lot with, you know, they have a problem with, talk about origins, where did it all start, how do you explain that? I think um, it's all, again, it's all theory, but lack of fossil record is huge, you know what I mean? The longer they say it takes, the more transitional fossils we should have. We have zero, and I think that's big. How do you explain morality, goodness, music, love, friendship? Like those things have no bearing in the Olympic brain or any other, and, and you know, Anyway, you can just continue to go on. And in a sense, it's like a physics problem, right? We used to be here, so we're going here, so we're headed. And you can sort of play, play the math a little bit. But those are kind of easy, to me, easier points. Origin, morality, um, lack of fossils. Kind of depends on if they're wanting to come at it from more of, you know, what angle, you know what I mean, they're trying to go. So I know it doesn't answer the brain question, but um, all right. Uh, we... We should probably wrap it up. So I hope, hope this has been helpful. Good uh, ABF. Uh, certainly, you know, Sam is in the back. Chris and I, we're here. You're in, our information is there. So you're welcome to shoot us a text or call us or whatever. And if you guys have good resources for us to maybe we could <clears throat> suggest for the bookstall, um, you know, we could put those before the elders and, uh, and none of the three of us are elders. We could put those before the elders and have them look them look at them and see if that's a book that would be helpful to the body in, the, in these topic matters, okay?